Hey there, everybody. This is Scott Grimes. This is Mark Jackson. This is Patrick Cox. You know, Justin the Ogre. Hi, this is Jessica Zor. This is BJ Tanner. You are tuned into the Planetary Union Network with your host, Lieutenant Commander Portis. Hi, this is Joe Quickle, and welcome to a very special science episode of Planetary Union Network, the official Orville podcast. Joining me as co-host today is my wife, Megan. Megan is a huge fan of our guest, and why don't you go ahead and introduce him? Joining us today is a man that honestly really needs no introduction, but he is my favorite scientist alive, and we're so honored to have him. And so we're going to go ahead anyway and introduce world-famous astrophysicist, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Welcome, Dr. Tyson, and thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me on the show. Now I want to know who your favorite scientists are who are dead. <laughs> your favorite one who's alive. <laughs> um, I will have to say that would be Dr. Stephen Hawking, so... <laughs> You're right up there with the greatest I can ever imagine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, so you're not a stranger to podcasts, and uh, you've been hosting the Star Talk podcast, which is now, I believe, in its tenth season. Yeah, thanks for thanks for for that uh, plug. It's uh, we were kind of early in the podcast universe, and we're and we're still there, going strong. Who were some of your favorite guests? Oh, great question. I have several. Um, so loved interviewing Bill Clinton. And what my favorite story from that was on in the in the Oval Office in their sort of situation table or whatever they talk about at the table that's not his desk. Um, he has he had borrowed a meteorite from uh, either the Smithsonian or the NASA collection. And it just sits there in the middle of the table. And any time conversations got tense. So the, the detente was not working or something. He would say, that rock is 5 billion years old. <laughs> and everyone at the table would just pause and then, and then just sort of look at the rock. And it would, it, would, it would reset the conversation to start with a more cosmic perspective, which, according to him, enabled many more uh, agreements to be arrived at uh, in the Oval Office that might have otherwise been possible. So that was a fun guess. Also, Biz Stone. Uh, which sounds like a, a movie star name. Some who are really in the social media universe might recognize it. He's one of the founders of Twitter. And I, he said something to me I have just never forgotten. He, he noticed that birds, when they're just sort of on the ground pecking away at crumbs you might have thrown them, they're all individuals. But then something can happen where they all take flight and then they flock together. They all turn left, they turn right. It's mysterious to we humans, but surely the birds know what they're doing. And then something happens where it's time to stop. Then they all come back and land and go back about their ways. And before Twitter, there was no force to enable humans to flock. But in the world of Twitter, you, you can start something. It, is, I was, I, it blew my mind. You could, you could have everybody do the same thing at the same time for a short period of time, and then everyone goes back to being individuals. 
And I noticed this. I, I forgot the day, forgive me, but it was the day where it was announced that we, we got Bin Laden. And I, I live near Ground Zero in Manhattan. And I was just minding my own business. It was late at night, I don't know, 11, midnight, very late. And all of a sudden, I heard these crowds in the street. And there was noises. I, this, that's uncommon. And I looked out, and people were on their way towards Ground Zero. And I said, what happened? And then I looked in the news, and Bin Laden was captured. Something organized everybody to flock. And that was social media, and it was Twitter in particular. So it's, it's moments like that in an interview where... I, I learn, a, you know, I interview people so I can learn. I, I, I get a perspective that was not otherwise something that came out of my natural training as a scientist or even particular, in particular as an astrophysicist. And what we just posted was an interview. This was, we broke normal format of Star Talk, where I normally have a co-host who is, a, who is a, a comedian, and we bring in experts and things. This one, it was just the pure conversation I had with Astro, former astronaut Mae Jemison, and no stranger to space fans. Um, and she's first, she's an icon, and she's brilliant, and has these ideas about the future of civilization and what we need to do about it. And so that conversation was so rich and so informed that we just let that run for the entire length of the podcast, and then we just posted that. That's incredible. Those are three amazing um, guests that you've had, and, and really the tells about the good things that social media has brought us, not just the bad things that sometimes we think about. <laughs> yeah, the trolling and everything else. Yeah, right. Right. All of you know, that. I just have second, <laughs> second thoughts on social, it's a whole social media thing. That's fantastic. But yeah, the good things give you renewed confidence in it. Perfect. All right. So you've had a long history with the Hayden Planetarium. Uh, could you tell us a story about your first visit there and then what inspired you from that to take classes there in high school and eventually become the director of the Hayden Planetarium? Yeah, so you did all your homework on that one. <laughs> so it was my first night sky at age nine, uh, coming a, a family visit to New York City's Hayden Planetarium, which is part of the larger American Museum of Natural History. And so that was my first encounter with the night sky, really. And I, I've said this often, just I remembered, you know, because I'm a city kid, what do I know about the night sky? The tall buildings, back then there was air pollution. You didn't have a relationship with the sky. You had a relationship with people and buildings and pollution and cars and traffic and violence. So a trip to the planetarium was this magical, magical excursion. And it may be the very first virtual reality um, encounter anyone ever had just going inside the dome of a planetarium where they dim the lights and the stars come out. And I just thought it was a hoax because there were just too many stars on the sky. I knew how many stars, there were 12 stars in the night sky. <laughs> there was not countless thousands. And so that was my sort of baptism. And I, I think the, the universe chose me in a sense. Uh, I, was, I had no other, no options after that but to be a student of the universe itself. I love that. Um, so my next question um, for you is, what is on your science bucket list? I, in terms of uh, things I haven't visited or done? Correct. What kind of bucket list are you Well, I'll, I'll, I think of a, a life bucket list, and, and science to me is life. Um, so anything that you haven't done, oh, well, haven't you, studied, <laughs> haven't so, wanted to, so kind of. Let me your question. 
Uh, let me reword your question. I think okay. what you mean is, what would be on the bucket list of a scientist? <laughs> that, that's even better. So I got, here's my bucket list. Ready? I got a few things. I got a few things. So uh, one, I'd like to be, this is, this is an easy one to accomplish. It just costs a few dollars. But I, I want to be, I want to experience weightlessness. Never done that. And they have these airplanes where they go into sort of parabolic free falls in these sequences. And I, that would just be the coolest thing. I don't need to go into space to make that happen. We can do that in these airplanes. And I want to feel what it's like to be on the moon. They have trajectories that will give you one-sixth gravity, such as what's in on, the, on the moon, or 40% of Earth's gravity. That would get you Mars. I just want to see, I just want to feel what that's like for a little bit. So that's, that's on my bucket list. Uh, I want to visit the Large Hadron Collider at the European Center for Nuclear Research, CERN. That's the, the particle accelerator in Switzerland that discovered the, the, what they call the God particle, the Higgs boson. Exactly. Any, any science yeah. Um, yeah, it, and it freaks, might, that might be on any of ours right there. <laughs> right. So I'm, I'm not alone in that one. So that's a good one. And let me see what else. Uh, I know what I want. I, I want world peace. <laughs> am, I, am I allowed to wish for that? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so those, those, are, those, are, those are my top... Oh, by the way, let me flesh that out. I think the moment we have the capacity to send, you know, busloads of people into orbit, or no, busloads of people to the moon, then the first set of buses, because I looked this up recently, there's 195 sort of registered countries in the world. So let's get 195 world leaders and let's give them a plus one so they can bring a, bring a date, okay, or their spouse. So 400 people, we send, them to, we send them to the moon and have them look back at Earth. And they will see Earth as nature intended you to notice it, not with color-coded boundaries of the countries you rule or the countries you live in but with just the blue of the ocean and the, the, the brown and the green of the land and the white tops of the clouds. And this can be, this can, can, can transform who and what you are, not only to one another, but to nature itself. And I'm reminded of a quote, if you allow me to read it. This is a quote from... Um, uh, this is a this is a quote. I'm gonna dig it out here. Um, yeah, there it is. So this is a quote from Edgar Mitchell, who is the Apollo 14 astronaut. Uh, he died a couple of years ago. So here it is. He went to the moon, and he came back. And this is what he told Time Magazine: "You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it." From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter million miles out and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. Ooh. I get chills. Just I was going to say, that. you just gave me chills because that he could not have said it better. Myself, yourself, that looking back and seeing our world can make us feel so small and that we make specks of dust 
in this. And it really isn't about the day to day, like you said, politics or meaninglessness of we are human beings on this planet ready to do something better. Yep. 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 Agreed on all counts. <laughs> all right, so um, in your opinion, uh, what is the most exciting thing happening right now in the realms of space and science? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, um, I love it all. People occasionally want me to pick and choose. And, um, but I like thinking about the states of our most profound ignorance. So, for example, the longest unsolved problem in modern astrophysics is the the nature and the origin of what we call dark matter, which is really dark gravity. There's gravity out there, and we don't know what's causing it. And your listeners would surely be fluent in this topic. Yes. <laughs> but just in case there's a few that aren't, there's things held together. There are galaxies, and there are galaxy clusters that are held together with a certain amount of gravity that is not accounted for if you add up all of the stars and gas clouds and black holes and all the things that we know and love as matter do not account for all of the gravity we see. So this got historically been called dark, has been historically been referenced as dark matter, but I prefer to call it dark gravity because that's literally what it is. And so we don't know what that is. We don't know what dark energy is. This is another mystery in the universe. It's been with us for now 20 years and it's the, acceleration of the expanding universe. There's a mysterious pressure in the vacuum of space that is overcoming the urges of gravity to recollapse the universe, and it is sending us expanding in an accelerated rate. That's a mystery, too. I, I, want, I want to know what that is. Uh, we don't know how you go from um, inanimate molecules to self-replicating life. That transition, which Earth had no problems accomplishing, it did it pretty quickly, given the, the, the age of the Earth. It happened in a couple of hundred million years. Given how long Earth has been around since then, that ha that's pretty quick. So that's a mystery, a frontier of biology, of course. And I'd say the last one for me, my top four, to round out my top four, is I want to know what, what was around before the Big Bang. And maybe that's not even a legitimate question. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, no I, have a, I, no, I have a fifth question. You ready? It's the question... I don't even yet know to ask because a future discovery will land me in a vista where that question becomes obvious as the next path of inquiry. That is the best question ever not thought of. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... Uh, since uh, since 2019 marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing, um, kind of thinking about the next manned mission somewhere. So, how do you th how long do you think it'll be until we actually have a man landing on Mars? Uh, possibly, possibly never. And I'm not saying that because I'm a pessimist. I'm saying it because I I read history <laughs> and I understand why we do things. Um, if you look at the writings in the early 1970s, after we had just landed on the moon and been there several times, they said, oh, the next ambitious project will be to land men on Mars in the 1980s. Well, these people are thinking that we just went to the moon because it was a cool thing to do or because it was in our DNA or because we're Americans and that's what <laughs> Americans do, we explore. And completely missing, no, completely missing the fact that we went to the moon 
because we were scared witless over the Soviet Union because they had beat us in every, practically every other measure of space achievement. They had the first artificial satellite. They had the first non-human animal, the, the dog Laika. They had the first human. They had the first female. They had the first black person, a Cuban astronaut. They had the first... The, they, they had so many firsts. And you go back even further, turn of the century, there's a guy who invented the rocket equation. It's the equation that tells us how much fuel you need to deposit a payload at some distance away from the surface of the earth. Can't have rocketry without that. So they were beating us in everything. And we're trying to show the world that we're the right way to go. So that's why we went to the moon. There's a military driver that made that happen. So to just think, let's put people on Mars because that's what we should do next. Fine. But I, my read of history tells me that's not going to happen unless there's an economic or military motivation to do so. So here's what you need. You need China to just leak a memo. It doesn't have to be a real memo. Just leak a fake memo out of their headquarters, their political headquarters. It said they want to put military bases on Mars. <laughs> Let us get a hold of that. We're on Mars ten, in 10 months. One month to, to fund and build the spaceship and nine months to get there. We'll have people on Mars immediately. But without that kind of incentive that has driven nations and cultures to achieve and or more specifically to spend capital, human and financial capital, I just simply don't see it happening. Great perspective. I, I really like that. And I had heard you say before that we needed that economic motivation. Um, just didn't know if that had, had changed in the past couple of years of our political climate or if if you even thought it was in the realm of existence right now. So that's a that's a really great answer on on if we'll ever um, land on Mars. I like that. So here's here's I think the most realistic scenario. So so uh, Elon Musk, he's, you know, at the front of the line wanting to land people on Mars. And I will never get in the way of someone with that level of ambition, okay? I'm not going to say, no, you can't do that. No. <laughs> Go at it, Elon. But here's the difference. What, what I think will happen is there will be some motivation, not exploratory motivation, some other geopolitical motivation to put humans on Mars. And the government will say, damn, we don't have a spaceship to do this. And Elon Musk says, I do. <laughs> he rolls out his Mars rocket that he's been working on for 10 years. And then Elon gets to be the first to land on Mars with his rocket, but he's not doing it as part of a business model. Um, he's doing it with American taxpayer money in the fulfillment of a geopolitical goal. I, I, I totally see that. Um, so we have a kind of outside the box question, but I, I know you like those. Um, we see faster than light travel on a lot of sci-fi shows um, in the past and, and currently today. What do you think of traveling faster than the speed of light? And in your opinion, would you think this would be, be even molecularly possible? Okay, so um, here's the thing. You can't have a space science fiction movie unless somebody's traveling faster than light. <laughs> They'd be really boring movies, okay? <laughs> if, if you take the fastest spaceship we have ever built. Okay, they were not crewed. They were, you know, there was, nobody was on them. They had satellites on them. So Voyager, one of the Voyagers, the fastest thing we've ever sent, or the, the um, New Horizons mission to Pluto. These are some of the fastest things we've ever sent. If you instead aimed that for the nearest star system to the sun, 
that would be Alpha Centauri, of course. As all your listeners know. <laughs> yeah, how long will that take to get there? Uh, you know, with a tailwind, <laughs> fifty thousand years. Okay, <laughs> you, you this and so, so there's human lifespan and there's fifty thousand years. These are non-commensurate numbers. So we live long enough to move around the solar system, but not enough to go star to star. So if we want to go anywhere in the galaxy, even visit our nearest neighbors, we need a new understanding of the fabric of space-time. We need warp drives, period. And this enables you to go faster than light. Now, one of the problems, which they hardly ever address in, the, in these shows, that if you go faster than light, you actually have some access to travel into your own past. That's usually ignored unless it's a specific time travel movie. And so yet there's some issues there. Uh, regarding that. It's so what you'd have to do is you travel faster than light in a loop that got you back around to where you are, and then you will then occupy a time previous to when you left. And then if you prevented yourself from going on that trip, then you would not have been there to prevent yourself from going on that trip. <laughs> so these are interesting time travel paradoxes that most are just swept under the rug. I love that. The fact that I even followed your statement and understood what you were saying makes me probably the happiest human alive right now. So, <laughs> Yeah, so you need, you need faster than light travel for all your good storytelling. And however they accomplish it, I have no problem. Call it hyperspace. Call it whatever you want, but you need it. Otherwise, you're not crossing the galaxy during the TV commercial. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> okay. How did you get involved in becoming the host for the successor to Cosmos? That's a great question. So, um, believe it or not, um, most of my engagement with the public is passive in, in the following sense. I don't wake up every morning and say, how am I going to reach the public today? What new way can I invent? This, this is not my thoughts. I'd rather just stay home or just go to my office. So what happens is people call they they if it's a documentarian they'll say oh, we need a sound bite or if the evening news and there's an event you know there's always the, the universe flinches every now and then more every than then uh, every now than every then but you know there's eclipses we discover a new planet there's a super moon don't get me started on that but there's stuff that makes you want to look up and i get a call i get a call so i try to be as good at that as i can because why not you know, if, if you have three minutes on the air and they want to know something. So I tried to work on the soundbite, which is this combination of, is the information interesting? Is it tasty? Tasty enough to want to tell someone else? And does it make you smile? It make you enjoy having learned that information? For me, that's the anatomy of a soundbite. And when I am in the process of delivering soundbites, those are the criteria that's the filter that I use to pass information through so that the, the interviewer will enjoy it and perhaps so will the viewers. So that's what I do. But then I just go home, right? All right. Here's what happened with Cosmos. I, I reconnected with Andrian. Andrian is the widow of Carl Sagan. She's a hugely talented uh, person. 
in ways that uh, that people are only beginning to discover out there. The public is only beginning to discover. She co-wrote the original Cosmos with Carl Sagan and with Steve Soder. So she was one of the original writers from the 1980 series. And she co-wrote the 2014 Cosmos, my uh, uh, stint as host. And she co-wrote the next Cosmos, where I once again serve as host. She feels the universe. So anybody could just write information. You put a wiki page in a, in a documentary video and talking about the moon, Mars, and beyond, you could do that. But what distinguished Cosmos from all other documentaries is that you're not even thinking documentary when you're looking at it. There's some other relationship you have with the visuals and with the content and with the phrasing and the music. You end up feeling the universe and you feel compelled to do something with your newfound insights and knowledge and wisdom that the series imparts upon you. So that nearly all of that sort of social, personal, emotional connection to science and to the universe itself comes from Andrewian. And so here's what happened. I was invited to serve on the board of the Planetary Society, organization co-founded by Carl Sagan back in 1980. Uh, um, and Lou Friedman is uh, another one. He's a big solar sail guy, by the way. You can Google that. Um, and another guy named Bruce Murray. Three of them co-founded the Planetary Society, an organization to try to get the public interested in space exploration. And 1996, Carl Sagan dies. And then I got a phone call from the board. Would I consider joining the board of the Planetary Society? And I was saddened by the loss of Carl and honored that I'm like the next person they think of in his death. So these are serious shoes to fill. But I say I'd be delighted to. And it is on that board that I re-met Andrew. And I'd met her many years before. I met her again. And I learned that she was thinking about Cosmos. And I said, I'd be happy to help in any way. I have expertise. And she said, would I want to host? And I said, there's surely a dozen people who want to host this. I don't need, because I don't need to be in people's face. I'm happy to enable other things. But then I thought, you know, I, I met Carl when I was a kid. And I can tell Carl stories. And, I, and it, it meant a lot to me what he did and what he opened up in terms of the public's access to science and the, and the cultural access to science. So I thought maybe I could host it in a way that would be unique. And so I said this to her, and then we proceeded from there. And I joined the Cosmos production effort. And I became his host um, back in 2013, airing in 2014. So that's it. That's, that's the story. That's... It's not deeper than that, <laughs> but... Um, it was kind of a mutual agreement that maybe I could do something good in that role. And, and uh, that's the role that I serve. So I see myself as a servant of the Cosmos brand, if, if you allow me to use that phrase, and a servant of the public's appetite for not only learning about science, but learning about why science matters. Absolutely. And, and that's so fascinating. I grew up on the original Cosmos. So and that's where my love of astrophysics and the world and space came from. So that's an amazing story to hear from you that just really like touches my soul today, quite honestly. Um, 
I have, we have two more questions for you just to be um, conscious of your time today. Um, and another kind of pop culture question, because I could sit and talk to you about science all day long, but for our viewers, um, of all the pop culture science movies that are out there, um, which one do you think is the closest to what is really out there? Uh, that's a great question. So, um, I'm I'm on record for being a fan of Star Trek, uh, especially the original series for the ground that it had broken, not only with the internationality of the main crew on the deck. Of course, the captain is white male, okay, because what else could you have in the 1960s? But to have a black female, a Scottish person, an Asian person, Japanese, what, you know, that was very forward-looking at the time. Also, handling story themes that were really mirrors of our culture but they were presented as a science fiction tale but if you told them as actual mirrors of our actual culture they probably wouldn't have made it to air so so just in terms of the social cultural impact of that series also i think i've looked hard and i think and i welcome second opinions here i think the uss enterprise was the first spaceship ever portrayed that was designed to go nowhere in particular, <laughs> just to explore. Think about it. Every other movie that has a ship, it this is going to take us to Mars. This is going to go to the moon. This is going to go to some weird planet. This is the point of this spaceship. And then you park it over on the side and you do your thing and then you go home. Not so the Enterprise. That to to, to that which is so obvious to us to us today in retrospect at the time was this leap of imagination of what the future might be. And to this day, that influences how I think about it. People say to me, what should be the next destination in space? My answer is everywhere, everywhere. Turn space into our backyard and do not pre-ask where you wanna go, let people explore. So for me, and the fact that they had some caring for reality, Okay, photon torpedoes, lasers, phasers. Um, they now, I <laughs> that's something that looked for all the world like a microwave oven long before <laughs> there were microwave ovens. And there I was. I've I, I said this before, and I'm, I'm I I will be happy to delightfully embarrass myself again by telling this again that I was I saw it in first run. That's how old I am, and I saw the the the, the weapons and the 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 warp drives and the beam me up and all of this. I say, yeah, yeah, that's the future. And then they would walk up to a door and the door would just automatically open. They say, oh, that'll never happen. <laughs> How does the door know you're there? It can't know that. How does it know? And so never try to get predictions of the future from me because I got it all wrong from, from, from that. So Star Trek, I li liked their attempt to get as much science right as they could. Let's fast forward to modern times and you have movies that give a lot of attention to scientific reality. We go back to the 1990s, there was Contact, based on the novel by Carl Sagan, that had excellent science advisors, including Carl Sagan himself, of course. There was the movie Deep Impact. If you're gonna have asteroids take us out, you don't have them all aiming for, you know, monuments, right? And I don't know if you remember, in Armageddon, there was an asteroid that, that hit the Chrysler building in Manhattan. 
No, that's not going to happen. <laughs> it decapitated the... Oh, come on, Dr. Tyson. You took you, out the clock. You just, you just ruined my entire high school thought process. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, don't get me started about movies. So, <laughs> so, but um, the Deep Impact movie it knew that most of Earth's surface is water. So an asteroid is going to hit the water. And you can still destroy the cities, but you do it with a tsunami instead of decapitating asteroids that decapitate tall, important buildings. So, so they had New York go underwater with a huge tsunami, brilliantly filmed. The science was accurate enough to, make, to, to, to do that right, and the storytelling was great. Uh, and also, of course, it even doesn't even need to be mentioned, but I'll do so, The Martian. The Martian had 99.9% .9 of everything accurate. And we'll just, there it was. And for me, what was good about The Martian was that science became a character unto itself in the storyline. That was the first movie where I think you could legitimately turn science the noun into science the verb. As Mark Watney said in the trailer, I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. <laughs> and each day you'd wonder, how is he going to not die today? What kind of innovative knowledge will he bring from engineering and science, all the branches of science? So that was the suspense. It wasn't, or oh, are they in love and they're not going to be in love? Or is he going to do this and he's going to meet his family and his kids? It's, is, how is he not going to die today? That was sufficient suspense for us all. So that's where I sit in all of this. And, 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 one last thing about Armageddon, I, I calculated this. I think it violated more laws of physics per minute than any other movie ever filmed. <laughs> don't, don't tell me that, please. Please just don't tell me that. <laughs> but even way, though a completely charming, entertaining film. And it had great fun acting and, and, and you love Bruce Willis and... And Liv, Liv Tyler, yeah, Liv Tyler, uh, good people in that. And so I enjoyed it. It's a fun movie. Just don't go to it and believe that anything is accurate at all. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> totally agree with that. <laughs> oh, by the way, I, 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 and, you know, the analogies and the spirit energy communicating from the original Star Trek series into the veins and arteries and capillaries of the Orville are, are, are manifest. I mean, you feel it in every episode, the effort to tell a, to tell a morality tale, the effort to use space as the, as the stage for that tale. And you update it with issues that are current for us, but I'm glad, I'm glad Seth um, never lost the, he was bitten by that bug and I'm glad he, he remained touched by it. Seth has done an incredible job of bringing that that wholesomeness of original sci-fi back and like you said today's topics and bringing them on topic and making sure people understand them in the in the best um, sci-fi available I think I would also say and it's he, he's accomplishing it without sort of grat without gratuitous space warfare right um, you know to, you know what is what is Star Wars It's like a western in space everybody should get in shoot him up and oh it's a creature that's got the gun all right but there's still a gun on your holster right so <laughs> uh anyhow that so those that was those are my that's my sort of my world view there 
It's a perfect worldview. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. By the way, uh, one, one, one other thing about spaceships. Uh, I have to agree. I don't know if you've ever been to Comic-Con in San Diego, but I, one of the last sessions, I think it's even after the last session, there's something called the Starship Smackdown. Do you know about this? And so everyone gets in and argues what is the baddest ass spaceship there ever was. And you can invoke any kind of argument you want. <laughs> even kind of absurd if it's intrinsically and internally consistent. Even if it's otherwise absurd, you're allowed to offer it. Well, one year, someone argued the Spaceship of the Imagination from Cosmos. And I thought about it and I said, yeah, actually, that is badass. The Spaceship of the Imagination. Why? The spaceship emanates from your thoughts. It can go forward and backwards in time. It can go to any place where it wants at any time. So it doesn't have to have weapons. It can go, not that we do this in Cosmos, but just think about it as an all-purpose spaceship. You don't need weapons. Why? Because you can go back in time and prevent the conflict before it escalates into violence. You can, so, so it is, it has powers that no other spaceship has, and it does so simply because of its access to the space-time continuum. And that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm awestruck by that. <laughs> And not only that, uh, Anne made a very important point. I just add this. Uh, I'm on the spaceship of the imagination. I'm in a, a, a black suit, not wearing a tie, an open neck button up shirt, but I'm not wearing epaulets or chevrons on my arm. There isn't an emblem on my chest. There is no weapon on my side. Any of these things means I'm achieving some place that you have not. I've been to Starfleet Academy and you have not. And Anne wanted this position that I hold as at the helm of the ship of the imagination. She wanted that to be accessible to everybody. To everybody. All I'm doing is talking about the universe. I mentioned the dinosaurs. I walk off the side of the ship and I am 65 million years ago on Earth watching that meteor strike. Did I need a transporter? No. My imagination is enabling all of this to happen. And on that ship, the imagination is real. That's the fun part about it. And, of course, we have all the special effects and the digital um, thing. That's what, that's what enables the power of the ship to do all that it is scripted to do. All right. So, finally, uh, we'll wrap up with um, um, we, we know about your, uh, your vests and ties, but do you also wear space-themed socks? They exist, and I'm very jealous because I have big feet, and none of the socks are big enough to fit my feet. Aww. My heel lands halfway up the the up the, <laughs> the, 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 the down tube section of the sock. And so I just admire them when other people wear them. Even, and by the way, <laughs> someone came up to me, put my face on a sock, and huh. said, look what I did. Do you want to you know, go into business with this? I said, that's that's simultaneously flattering and creepy but i said well let me try it on anyways so i tried it on and it stretched out my face so i looked like you know ch ch some chubby it was like it was no longer looked like me i don't know what the hell it turned out to be so i i, I don't i'm not a sock guy in this regard but um I'm, I, I'm a fan if i see other people wearing cosmic socks i'm a fan of people wear cosmic anything because yeah i got my ties and vests and 
you know, guys don't have that much fashion out there to um, choose from. You know, we can choose a tie, a vest, maybe, um, a cufflinks. So we need to open up the, the clothing line so that you don't look weirdly at a guy who's wearing a cosmic legging, for example. <laughs> <laughs> the female fashions, it's all, they got that. They, they, they own that whole part of the, of the fashion universe. So uh, I, I want to be able to walk out with stars and planets on my pants. That's what I want to be able to do and not have people laugh at me. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, uh, thanks again, Dr. Tyson, for, for joining us on our show. Well, thanks for having me, and and I, uh, I'm glad to. Sorry to not know, have not much known of your show until I got the call, the invitation to be on it. But I'll, I'll definitely bookmark that on my on my uh, podcast listening. All right, thank you, and thank you so much. This has been such an honor to talk to you today. Um, you've literally made not only my 2019, but probably the next decade of my life. So I <laughs> I truly appreciate the honor today, sir. Okay. Also, right quick before we go, we'd like to ask you about your books. Yeah, just one of them was called um, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, which is a, a very tiny book. It's not Astrophysics for Dummies. Don't don't think it's that. It's real astrophysics, but it's not. It's handpicked the coolest stuff in the universe in a very small thing that fits in the palm of your hand. So there's that. And then the most recent book, um, Accessory to War, The Unspoken Alliance Between Astrophysics and the Military. So that one is all about the history of astrophysicists aiding and abetting um, military interests of nations. And it's a, it's a, normally you think of us as being quite passive and peaceful, which we are, but we turn a blind eye to when there's shared technology between what's necessary to conquer and what's necessary to observe the universe. So I, I, my co-author on that is uh, Avis Lang. Because uh, that was a huge project that I, I would I would never have finished it without a co-author. So that's how that goes. Fantastic. Well, okay. So, th- again, thanks for your interest. Oh, absolutely. And thank you so much, sir. And um, look forward to um, hope maybe talking to you again in the future. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if something comes up and they're thinking of Orvilling it, I'd be happy to offer um, um, perspectives from my side of the universe. Uh, so, yeah, I'm there for you. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Take care. I would like to thank Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson again for joining us on the Planetary Union Network. And if you're not already, follow us on Twitter at Planetary underscore Union. On Facebook, find us at Planetary Union Network. Instagram, Planetary Union Network. Or hit our website at planetaryunion.net.